Well, let's, um, let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's ask God to help us. Father, your word tells us in Deuteronomy that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So give us expectant hearts that when we meet here today, you've promised that you are here amongst us. Then when we open your word, you promise that you will speak to us. And you are a good father and a great king. And you want to address us. And your spirit is in us so that we might really hear and have your word applied to our hearts. So we ask that you would do that right now. That it would be an encounter with you, mighty God, in what we're doing. That the words that I speak would actually be your words. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if any of you caught this uh, movie that came out only a few months ago, I think, yesterday. Um, Jack Malik, the main character, he wakes up from an accident, and the world that he wakes up in is a world where the Beatles never existed. Now, think about that for a moment. A world where the Beatles never existed. Can you imagine that? Because the Beatles had such a huge impact, right? Like, they completely changed music the way the music, pop music was written and performed and recorded. Um, they shaped youth culture. They shaped pop culture forever. Everything was influenced by the Beatles. I mean, imagine a world where the Beatles never existed. Now, I'm looking at some of you, and I know you're thinking, okay, boomer. <laughs> I'm not even a boomer, but anyway. You're thinking, okay, so what? Like, who were who even the Beatles? Like, what difference would it make? Well, I don't know if you've ever thought about what would happen if we never had those parts of the Old Testament, including the ones that we just read, the Old Testament laws. Imagine if we had a Bible without the Old Testament laws. What if that never existed? I mean, would it actually make that much of a difference to us today? Because I think a lot of you would know that as Christians, New Testament people, like there's just so much that is not relevant to us. I mean, laws about kosher versus non-kosher foods, like all that food that they weren't supposed to eat, that we happily eat, like pig and crab and lobster, all the good stuff, right? So what relevance is those laws? Those laws about not making marks on your skin and tattoos. Well, what about those laws? Laws about, well, the kind of clothing you can have and the materials that you, you know, you can't weave two different types of material together. Like, what's that about? What does that even have to do with anything? Well, laws in Deuteronomy about oxen, and we don't even have farms, but oxen that you're not supposed to muzzle when they're treading the grain. And like, so if these laws never existed, what difference would that make? Have you ever thought that? Because here in Deuteronomy, um, this section we're going to look at, we're actually going to be looking at essentially 14 chapters. I'll give you an outline of 14 chapters. This section is all about laws and these kind of laws. They govern the life of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, to such minute details so that these guys would be ready to go into the promised land. Now, the question for us is, well, what does that have to do with us, right? What do we do with them? So that's where I'm going to begin. A point one on your outlines, on the inside, you want to see. Um, let's, let's start here. Before we look at some of the laws in detail, I want to give you some thoughts about, well, how do Old Testament laws relate to New Testament people or Christians? Now, there are two errors. One error is thinking that the Old Testament law directly applies to us. That is, this law is our law as well. The other error is the opposite error, thinking that, well, 
the Old Testament law doesn't apply to us, so it has no relevance. All right, so this law is one error, no law is another error. So let's go with the first one. Um, This law, the law of Moses, what God spoke to Israel then, as well as in the other books of the first five books of the Bible, right, that somehow that is also our law. Now, that is an error because we know in the New Testament very clearly that we are not under the law of Moses. Okay, we are not. Christians, followers of Jesus on this side of Jesus, we're not under the law of Moses. We are not Israel. Uh, okay, these laws have to do with their identity and their covenant, their set of formalized agreement, relationship, their covenant with God, right? For a period of time with their life in uh, the land of Canaan, as a political entity governed by God, theirs was a theocracy with God as their king. That was them, and these laws are in that context. And for them, obeying these laws, as Deuteronomy makes very clear, is how they maintain their relationship with God. Right? They stayed right with God by obeying these laws. Now, Christians are in a totally different situation, right? Because we know that Jesus brings a new covenant. And if there's a new covenant, that means the old one is no longer applicable, yeah? And the reason why Jesus brings a new covenant, a new set of relationships with God is this, because Jesus actually already perfectly fulfilled the old covenant laws for us. He was the perfect Jew, the perfect Israelite, and he was the only Jew, the only Israelite who did everything to the letter completely. And he did that for our sake. So that we can actually be right with God, not on the basis of our performance and our obedience, but on the basis of His performance and His obedience. You know that's what happens. When someone becomes a Christian and puts their trust in Jesus, Jesus not only takes your sin and pays it all for you, past, present, and future, He gives you His perfection, His righteousness. Imagine you are in massive debt, billions of dollars of debt, And Jesus is in massive wealth, billions of dollars of wealth. He not only takes your debt and cancels it so that you have zero debt, he then gives you his bank account. That's sort of what's going on. That's what the good news of Jesus is about. The word gospel means good news. The gospel is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you are not going to be right with God based on your performance, based on your religiosity, based on how good you are. God Right? You can never be good enough anyway, no, but someone else did it for you. God himself did it for you in Jesus. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be right with God on his performance. Christianity is unlike any religion. Right? Any other religion is about what I've got to do. Christianity alone is about what God has already done for me. It's a free gift. I just need to accept it. Now, I'm laboring this point because if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is good news, isn't it? Because every other religion is going to put you on a path like a treadmill where you have to keep performing. Christianity alone says, someone's already done it for you. And so you are free to love him with all of your heart, with the full assurance that his love brings. Okay, so that's Christianity. We're under a different covenant. So we're not under the law of Moses based on performance. Now, by the way, that includes the Ten Commandments. Okay, it includes the Ten Commandments. That's all part of the same covenant. So that's one mistake. This law is our law. The other mistake is that, well, no laws. So Christians need to think about no laws at all. Well, that's not true either because the new covenant, as we read in the New Testament, has new laws, new commandments. 
Um, um, so the, the, the Apostle Paul says that he is free from the law of Moses, but then he says, I am not free from the law of Christ. Or if you've ever been to our church building in Kingsgrove, we, it's not our building, we rent it, but um, at the back, right, right at the back, right at the front, obviously if you're facing the front, right at the back of the speaker, do you guys remember, those who've been, what, what verse is on the back? What does it say? It's John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commands. All right? There are commands. There are laws, rules within the new covenant. But one way of thinking about that is, well, you can't have a relationship with someone and, and love them, like Jesus says, if you love me, if you don't know what Jesus loves and what he hates. And, you know, if you really want to love someone well, you've got to know, right, what kind of things please them? What kind of things displease them? And that's the context of the new covenant laws, because we want to love Jesus. We want to please him. Okay, so Jesus has laws. Jesus has commands. But the question, I guess, is, well, what relationship? Do they have any relationship with the law of Moses, the Old Testament laws? Well, the answer is yes, they do have a relationship. They're not the same as, but there is a relationship between the Old Testament law and the commands of Jesus. Because Jesus himself says, what, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And by that, he doesn't just mean that he's going to obey it perfectly. He also means that when you're in a relationship with Jesus, you actually take the heart and soul of the Old Testament laws, the law of Moses, and you come to obey it from the heart. And you get into not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Because the New Testament is about God's laws written on our hearts. Right? The law of the Spirit who gives life, says Paul in Romans chapter 8. So the New Testament law will take Old Testament laws and go deeper. And so that's what Jesus often does. So you, you see Old Testament laws reflected in the New Testament, and you see that it actually goes deeper. So the, the law, Old Testament law, one of the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. And Jesus says, you know what? It's actually deeper than that. If you're to love Jesus, don't just not commit adultery. He says, actually, your thought life matters as well. Do you remember that? He says in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look lustfully at another person who's not your wife or husband, that is also committing adultery. So Jesus takes that law and he goes deeper. And that's what the New Testament does with Old Testament laws. Yeah, it goes deeper. It goes stronger. And Deuteronomy 25.4, I mentioned them, do not muzzle an ox while he's treading grain law. We're not going to talk much about that. But the New Testament takes that and quite interestingly, two places it uses it. And both times it's talking about making sure you're financially supporting full-time workers of the gospel, pastors and elders, right? Have a think about that later on. How does that relate to oxen? Anyway, all right, so that's what the New Testament does. It is Old Testament laws kind of reapplied, reinterpreted, sometimes intensified, or in the case of things like food laws and ceremonial laws, right, fulfilled and therefore no longer applicable. So how then do we apply Old Testament laws? Well, let me give you um, an illustration. It's, it's like refraction, Physics teachers, yes, science teachers. Okay, like light goes through a prism or a lens and it's refracted. And that's a helpful way about thinking, uh, thinking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Old Testament laws need to be refracted through Jesus before we see how they apply to us in the New Testament. So a helpful way of asking um, or a helpful way of looking at parts of the Old Testament is when you come to an Old Testament law is to firstly ask, what does this law teach God's people then, Israel, 
about what it meant to love God and love their neighbors in their context, okay? Don't jump directly to, okay, this tattoo law, no tattoo law, therefore no tattoos for us. If that's the case, a lot of hipster pastors would be in a lot of trouble, Um, all right? No, 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 that's not how it works. What did it mean then? What was the context? Why? Why was God commanding that, right? Understanding that, why, why was that related to how they love God or love their neighbors? And then you take that and then you see, well, how does Jesus change or intensify or comment or his death or resurrection? What difference does that make? Classic example, food laws. Jesus declared all foods clean. Why? Well, because he, by one sacrifice, opened the door for us to relate to God without ceremonial stuff. Jesus makes a huge difference. And then you ask the question, okay, well, that, with that in mind, with Jesus refracting it, how then does this teach me now as God's New Testament people of how to love God and how to love my neighbors? Do you see what I mean? It's, it's more like taking the principle, right, seeing it interpreted through Christ, and then applying that principle to our situation. Right? That's a shortcut way of how to understand uh, God's laws, Old Testament laws. So that was all kind of introduction part one. So that, you know, because my goal in this is I can't cover 14 chapters. So I want you to be able to go away, read this part of the Bible as well as other parts and have some sort of orientation as to how to read it and apply it. So now let's go to these chapters. Just to give you a bit of a, a reminder, we are in Deuteronomy, but this is actually the central section of Deuteronomy. Strangely enough, we spent like, what, six sermons on the first section, the introduction section, and we're going to spend one sermon here and then one sermon at the end as well. Um, see, the, this is the central section. So last week, we started in chapter 12, but this week we're going to cover the rest of that central section. Remember, Deuteronomy is about decision time. God had rescued Israel from Egypt, slavery. First time around, they got to the edge of the land. They failed. Whole generation died out. Forty years later, they were going to have another go. And so here, God is reapplying the laws that he had spoken to the older generation and saying, okay, now this new generation, these laws are still valid, but this is what's going to look like, what it's going to look like for you as you now go into the land, because some of these laws apply to them in the desert, but now we've got to go to the land. This is the central section. Right? And they go into so much detail because it has to do with now their life with God as king in the land. Now, on the right side of your bulletins, I've got a copy of the outline of these chapters. We won't be able to go through them in detail. That's just so you can help you read it um, as you go through it as well. Okay, but I want a shortcut um, to helping, again, helping us understand how Old Testament laws function. What's the logic behind them? Now, remember that Old Testament laws is about God's people, right, as they think about life in the land. So God's people are about to live in God's place under God's rule and blessing, right? God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so these laws are an expression of that. And so what you'll find, here's the triangle, is a really helpful thing to remember, is that every law is happening within that matrix or the, the three points, And the three points are God, people, land, because it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so every law will express one, two, or sometimes all three of those touch points, corners. Let me give you an example. If you are, during the week, you might have looked at Deuteronomy 15 for your community groups. I'll just give you a, a section of that. And I've highlighted the bits for you 
of where it touches either God, people, or land. And you'll see how this one chapter, sorry, this one section of a chapter touches on all three. Let's read it. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. You see that? Right? God, people, land, they're all mixed up in it. All of them matter. Right? All are tied together because Old Testament laws will therefore touch on theological things, ones that have to do with God, social things, each other, because they have to do with the people of God. And also, you might have noticed, a lot of economic things for Israel, their life in the land. See, God is trying to show them that life consists of the theological, the worship, the holiness, the obeying God and living under His rule, rejoicing before Him. It involves our relationships, both in the family as well as in society, and so things like good government, and in these chapters, justice is such a key theme. Good leadership becomes very important. And then it's also economic, right? The land, and in their case, it's an agricultural kind of world, so it's, it's things like farming, it's things like, but it's also things like money and loans and, and, and work and employment, right? Or in their, their sort of world, even if someone has to be a slave and how you treat slaves, right? It's theological, it's social, it's economic. Okay, so that's the triangle. So take the uh, refraction thing and the triangle thing, put it all together, shake it all up, mix it together, and now you know how to read Old Testament laws. Easy, huh? Great. Okay, good. That's, that was all the introduction. But I'm up to point three. Because what I want to do today, I can't cover everything. What I want to do is to take three things, one social, one economic, one theological, from these 14 chapters, just take one of each, and use them as a way of understanding how we can apply them, okay? So the first one, let's take the social one. When it comes to the social stuff, the community stuff, one of the key things that keep coming out of these uh, chapters is how much what I do affects you, and how much what you do affects me, and how much what we do affects us all. That we are all connected for the people of Israel They are to know that their life together is a connection. It's a tapestry. Everyone is woven together. So um, don't turn to it, but in Deuteronomy 21, a really curious chapter, when it came to unsolved murders, so you find a dead body somewhere, you don't know who did it. Now you think, okay, we'll just bury the body and we'll investigate. No, no, the law has to do with, well, even when you can't find out who did it, and therefore you can't punish the person for wrongdoing, even then this sin, this murder, unsolved murder, affects the community. It even affects the land because blood has been shed in the land, right? And so what then they have to do, Israel in chapter 21, is they have to offer a sacrifice to atone for the sin of someone's murder. 
that we don't know who did. Do you see what I mean? Like, because even sin, and you don't know who did this sin, still affects everyone. Right? Everything's linked. Everything's affected. It affects the land as well. Because God's people, you see, are like a big family, and God is their father, and therefore every member of the family is a brother or sister. That's sort of the picture of Israel. And so they have a mutual responsibility to really care for each other. And so um, look at Deuteronomy 22. I've got it there for you. If you see your fellow Israelites, ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to its owner. If they do not live near you, or if you do not know who owns it, take it home with you and keep it until they come looking for it. Then give it back. Do the same if you find their donkey or cloak or anything else they have lost. Do not ignore it. If you see your fellow Israelites, donkey or ox fallen on the road, do not ignore it. Help the owner get it to its feet. All right? Now, that may not seem like such a big deal to you because you've, you know, in Australia, if you lose something, um, probably is a 50-50 chance you'll get it back. Apparently, in somewhere like Japan, it's almost like if you go find it and someone's found it, they generally don't keep it. It's like 100% you'll get it back. In China, it's like 0%. All right? Um, but we've got to understand this idea of I find something that's yours that you've lost, that act- and I want to give it back to you rather than, you know, eat the ox. Um, that actually is a very Christian value that has actually come into our society. We're kind of slowly losing that, all right? Um, but the point is, we're responsible for each other. We look out for each other. And it's not just law, okay? It actually is also something that God wants to come from their heart. It needs to be motivated by generosity. And this is impossible to legislate because you can't legislate on the heart. And yet you've got laws like we read earlier in chapter 15. By the way, chapter 15 is about the year of cancelling debt. Every seven years, all debts are cancelled. Everything is wiped clean. And they are to be so generous and so open-handed and open-hearted that they will not hold grudges for giving a loan in the sixth year if it means that this person will never be able to pay it back in the seventh year. And God says, your heart matters. Now, you can't legislate on the heart, but God cares about our heart towards each other. Now, these Old Testament laws for Israel, they're pretty easily refracted through Jesus. Remember the first step? What did it mean for them? And now, it's, how does it refract, refract through Jesus? Well, that's pretty easy, isn't it? Because you remember when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? Because right? Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. The golden rule. And then someone says, well, then who is my neighbor? Is my neighbor only someone who's nice to me? Is my neighbor only someone who lives next door to me? Is my neighbor only a fellow Jew? That's basically how they used to interpret it, right? Jesus then goes on and tells them a parable, doesn't he? Which parable was it? The Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. If you don't know the parable, read it when you get home. But the Good Samaritan shows us that when Jesus says, love your neighbor by neighbor, he means the person you think is least like your neighbor, the person who's most different to you. The person who's, in in the case of the Samaritans and the Jews, racially completely at odds and at war, right? And if you are a Jew, or sorry, in this case, if you're a Samaritan and you see a Jew in distress, you act neighborly to that person, even though they're a Jew, and you help them radically at great cost to yourself. That is how Jesus takes this law, and he goes even further, right? Because Deuteronomy 22 only applies to fellow Israelites, Jesus says it applies to anyone God puts in your path. And so Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, when it comes to New Testament, it says, carry each other's burdens. 
And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You see, there is a law of Christ. You fulfill it when you carry each other's burdens. Now, this has so many applications to us today, doesn't it? And I'll tell you why it really um, stings for us especially. It's because we are in a culture that is all about the opposite. Like, if you think about it, our culture, what is a worship? What is a value? What's the most important thing to your average Australian today? It's about individuality, and it's about personal freedom and fulfillment, isn't it? There is nothing more sacred than my personal fulfillment and freedom. All the self-help books, but also all the media, it's all about finding yourself and being true to yourself, living to fulfill your personal enjoyment, right? Your goals, your good, as long as you don't hurt anyone else, right? Pursue you. And that's our culture. But you know what? That's not just out there, is it? If you're like me, this is how we've begun to think, isn't it? Right? It's me before we. My starting point is always me. And that's really poisonous, isn't it? When it comes into our life together as the people of God in the church. Because all of a sudden, I'm not thinking, I am a member of the family And I am a part of the body where what I do affects everyone else and what you do affects me. I stop thinking that because I'm thinking me. I'm thinking personal fulfillment. I'm thinking realizing myself. And so it's so easy to think within the context of church, right? And and, and you probably notice it. You might feel this now. I'm just one person. I wouldn't really make a difference if I leave this church. If I come late, just one person, no difference. If I don't decide to participate, if I don't contribute, if I don't give financially, if I don't, or if I if I if I hide secret sin, like what does that have to do with anyone else? It doesn't really matter, right? Because I'm thinking, I'm just one person. What difference does that make? But you see, the starting point is me, isn't it? Whereas God wants to remind his people in Deuteronomy and I think also us today that we are all connected. What what I do really does affect you. Because just just think about it this way. If you're you're tempted to think, well, it's just me, it doesn't really affect anyone else. Think, what, what if everyone else thought the same as me and did the same as me? Would we have a healthy church? Me turning up 20 minutes late, well, it doesn't affect anyone. What if everyone else turned up 20 minutes late? Me not participating or not investing, all of that's got to be, you know, stage of life appropriate and all that kind of stuff. Some of us um, are unable to. And actually, by and large, I'm talking to a group of people in this congregation, I think, who gives so much, right? Um, In fact, there's a lot of you, I'd be like, if everyone was like you, we'd have a great church. Um, So please don't hear this particularly for you guys as a word of rebuke. Um, But do you know what I mean? Like, it's helpful to sometimes think, well, what if everyone else, what if everyone else said, oh, you know, Church no longer suits my stage of life, so I think I'm just going to go somewhere else. Have we ever thought of that? I mean, that's so common nowadays. Like, it's, it's one of these things that we keep fighting with, 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 with church culture is that people think that church is primarily an event that I enjoy and people at church are there to meet my needs. And so if my needs aren't being met, you know, 
my stage of life is now different to when I was really the, the stage of life that everyone else is at, and now I feel like a little bit old or a little bit young and just no longer suited. I, I probably should just look for another church. Like, that's so common. That may be how you've thought. That may be why you've joined our church, right? But imagine if everyone thought like that. Because here's a newsflash. No church is going to meet your stage of life through your whole life. It's just impossible. No church is going to do that, right? And instead, if we're thinking we before me, then maybe my thinking should be, well, okay, yeah, I mean, I, I'm feeling like my stage of life isn't quite as connected as previously, or maybe because other people have moved on. But it's okay, because I'm not here for them to meet my needs. But what if I come to meet other people's needs? I mean, I might be the oldest person here, but there are younger people I could mentor. Or I might be the youngest person here, but there are older people I can encourage. Do you see what I mean? Once you start changing your point of view, that we are all connected, what I do affects others. Right? And then if everyone did that, oh man, all of a sudden we would have a really healthy church, wouldn't we? Right? This is what it means to be connected. And by the way, those of you who've become church partners or have just recently done a partnership course, that's great. That's part of the really significant first step um, that we've just run it. We'll run it again later in the year. Right? Become a church partner. That's a way of saying, yeah, I want to be committed to these people. Okay, so that's the first one, the, the social Right? We are all connected. How about the next one? Um, when it comes to the economic, one of the key things that come up, especially in section five, right, the bit highlighted, is how much the vulnerable need special care. Now, vulnerable just means that someone who is especially uh, open to being abused or used or taken advantage of because they have no power. And here, that passage that we read earlier, uh, did you notice that? So I hope you have your Bibles open. We'll just have a quick glance at those, some of those verses again. Deuteronomy 24. Uh, have your Bibles open. Um, verse 10, when you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, all right, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Verse 14, don't take advantage of a hired worker who's poor and needy, whether they're a fellow Israelite or even a foreigner. Pay them their wages every day before sunset because they're poor and counting on it. Verse 17, don't deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. Verse 19, when you're harvesting right, and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Okay? And it goes on and there's just so much about the economic stuff that is about that. God cares especially for the powerless, the vulnerable. And so in these chapters, you're going to get stuff about slaves and workers, and the poor, and children, and foreigners, and orphans, and widows, and animals, even. And here's the funny thing. Well, not funny, haha, but interesting thing. Um, even those who are guilty of accidentally killing someone, right? accidental manslaughter. Right? In the ancient world, if you accidentally kill someone, um, your life is in danger for revenge. And there are laws about protecting those people, because they're all of a sudden vulnerable. And the reason is in verse 18, verse 22 of the passage that we had read earlier. You see it there, verse 18 or 22? Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Right? The reason is because you were vulnerable and God treated you with grace and mercy when you were powerless and vulnerable slaves. And so how they treat slaves especially was really important. Now, these commands, you've got to understand make no economic sense 
in modern terms. So if you've done finance, commerce, economics, you'll be reading some of these thinking, man, how does society even function? I mean, chapter 15 that I read earlier, every seven years, cancel debt. And by the way, you weren't even allowed to charge interest when you made a loan to your fellow Israelites, okay? So not only do you not get interest, every seven years, no matter how much they've paid, their debt is wiped completely. And if they've sold themselves as indentured slaves, every seven years they're freed. And even if you made the loan or they sold themselves to you as a slave, on the sixth year, on the 360, how many days in a year? 64th day. The next day, right, you are still to wipe their loan. And do you see what I mean? Every seven years. So it's not count every seven years for you. It's on the seventh year. So if you did it in the sixth year, they potentially could take advantage of you. Like, that makes no economic sense, right? Like, if you make a loan to someone, not only do you not charge interest, you don't take anything as a pledge. Can you imagine our banks and corporations operating in that way? I mean, Westpac certainly doesn't do that. So I just had to have a dig at Westpac because they're in trouble. This, All right? But yet they were to do it anyway. Because this was an act of faith for God's people. That God would honor that. That God would in turn bless them for their generosity. So that's Old Testament laws about protecting the vulnerable. When it comes to Jesus, well, I mean, come on, how did Jesus model care and love for the most vulnerable, the most exploited, the most hated in his world? He loved them. He cared for them. And most of all, what did he do? Romans chapter 5 says, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus came and died for us when we had no power when we were under the slavery of Satan, when we were easily exploited, he came and died for us. And on that basis, we are in the New Testament to do the same to others. So James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Jesus' Jesus's people all throughout the centuries are at their best when they've led the way in this. Now, you need to know this. Historically, no other religion... I mean, look, mercy and caring for the poor is part of a lot of religions, okay? It's not a uniquely Christian thing, but no other religion has changed the world in the same way through their care for the poor that Christians have. That's just a fact. So in ancient Rome, the Christians were the ones who rescued abandoned babies, cared for the poor, provided for widows... When there was plague sweeping through the empire, they're the ones who stayed and cared for the plague victims at the risk of themselves. So much so that the pagan Roman emperor, who had no love for Christians, said, we've got a real problem here because these Christians are so good, people are turning to becoming Christians because these Christians are caring not just for their poor, they're caring for our poor as well. Change the world. So how are we to apply this today, though? Let me just say, well, we're not Israel. This is not setting up a new law and economic structure. So don't worry, this is not about embracing communism or socialism or anything like that. Um, But I think what it does mean is we have got to have a social conscience, don't we? We're talking about social justice especially. I mean, on the micro levels, yes, care about the vulnerable in our lives, and that's so important. But I'm really encouraged because a lot of you do have, and much more than me, have a social conscience. 
You care about social justice. But here's, I think, one of the big struggles when it comes to social justice today is, I don't know if, you, if those of you who've been trying to kind of um, operate or think or even advocate in that world, don't you find that we're just so divided? And we're really divided, aren't we, with the left and the right, or the progressive versus the conservative. And so you get people who are conservative, and they care about certain social justice issues, like abortion, like religious freedom, like censorship of porn, but they will never comment on vulnerable women, or climate change, or domestic violence. And then you get people on the left who are like, Yes, it's all about the vulnerable women. It's all about climate change. It's all about domestic violence and so on. But you won't get them to talk about protecting the unborn and, right? and, 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 and religious freedom. Do you see? And as Christians, I feel like we're, we're often caught into that polarization. We're either left or right. And a lot of my Christian friends, when I used to be on social media, would only comment and only criticize the other side that they're not a part of. But they would never self-criticize. But you see, all of these issues that are in our world divided across left and right, all of them are about the vulnerable. Climate change is going to hurt the vulnerable the most. The poorest countries, the Pacific nations, right? The rich are going to be able to ride it out. Not the poor. And the unborn are the most vulnerable, aren't they? They don't get to think for themselves. They don't get to speak up for themselves. And I think Christians, when we have a social conscience, we've got to be thinking, it's not about left and right. I've got to stand up for all of the vulnerable. Now, what does that mean in detail? I don't know. But I think we've got to have a much more balanced and fuller view of social justice because we care, as God does, for all of the vulnerable. And we need to advocate and have wisdom, and perhaps for some of us to even operate in a, in a sphere that I'm not very good at and don't know much about, but to be able to champion both. Right? Some things to think about on that side. But finally, let's go to the theological. And this is really where it all ties together. Because remember the structure of these chapters. You may not have noticed, or you may have noticed, it's, it's, it begins with stuff about God, and it ends with stuff about God. It begins with worship, it ends with worship. And then all the other stuff come in the middle. So what does that tell you about the laws of God for Israel? It tells you this, even when it's not about God, it's about God. That loving your neighbor is linked, inseparably linked to loving God. And I cannot love God with all of my heart, soul, and strength. Remember I talked about that a few weeks ago? Single-minded, wholehearted, unreserved. I can't love God like that if it doesn't affect every part of my life, every relationship, every context that I'm in, home, work, study, leisure, Every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year. It's all theological. It all comes in the context of worship. So Romans 12 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer what? Your bodies. All your whole selves. That's your living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. As Lisa realized in her couple of years of doing internship. There is no Sunday Lisa versus Monday to Friday Lisa. I don't know what happened to Saturday Lisa, but anyway. <laughs> Saturday Lisa is party Lisa. Um, right? Because every day is lived, um, the, the Latin phrases, coram deo. Say it with me, coram deo. Coram deo. Right? C-O-R-A-M-D-E-O. 
Everything is lived in the presence of God, or literally, Koram Deo means, right before the face of God. Every part of my life. Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch theologian and politician in the 19th century, says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, he put his money where his mouth is. He um, is a theologian, uh, Bible college lecturer type person, and he entered politics. Why? Because there's not one realm that Jesus does not say mine. And so for him, that's not just teaching the Christian students in my college. It also means being in the public sphere for him and being engaged in politics, you see? And that may be some of you. So you've got to ask yourself, when I look at Deuteronomy chapters 12 to 26, why is it so detailed? Why is every facet of Israelite life covered? What does that show me about what God values when it comes to loving Him? It shows me that there is not one part of my life that needs, should be hidden. There's not one part of my life that should be ignored when it comes to my worship and love for God. And don't we have so much more than what the Israelites have? God gave us His only Son to redeem us. He gives us the hope of heaven and the new creation, not just a promised land on earth, right? but a new earth. Don't we have to live this out even more? Here's a phrase I want you to have a think about, and I gave it to Kingsgrove this morning. God wants to micromanage your life. Have you ever thought of that? God wants to micromanage your life. And some of us have never really thought of God wanting to do that. Right? But He does. He wants to micromanage your life. The question is, are you letting Him? But you've got to remember, because we think of micromanage and we think, oh no, laws, restrictions, horrible, taking away my freedom. Why? Because we, you know, freedom's the most important thing in our culture. Yeah, I get that. But remember, all of this is framed by worship and if you were here last week you remember that worship in deuteronomy is not just about what i do at church or you know at the place of the temple where they were going to worship one day but actually those chapters on worship were all about what festivals and celebrations and and feasting and enjoyment so you've got to understand that all of these laws have to do with god wanting us to live our life to the fullest, how He created us to live. That when God wants to micromanage your life, it's actually not going to lead to restrictions and horror. It's going to lead to true freedom, true blessing, true joy. Because you know what? If you're micromanaging your own life and not allowing God to, it's not going to go well with you, okay? Right? It's not what we were created for. No, we were created to let God rule and to let God lead and to walk with the Spirit of God as New Testament people and let the Holy Spirit speak into every single facet of our lives and to surrender every single facet. So you ask yourself, are there unsurrendered parts of my life? Like if I asked you, what part of your life, and you maybe want to think about theological, social, economic, all right? All right, relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with work, study, all that kind of stuff. What part of your life would you not want 
this is, I'm just talking for, to Christians for a moment. If you're a follower of Jesus, what part of your life would you not want a new Christian to model themselves after you? Here's a good question, isn't it? Hey, imagine you've just met a new Christian. I'm just a baby Christian. I want to know how I'm going to live as a Christian. Show me your life, Pete. There'd be parts of my life would be like, hey, yeah, you know, this is okay. This is, you know, it's not perfect, but it's a good model. The other parts of my life would be like, oh, yeah, I didn't do it. No, ask someone else. But there shouldn't be any part, right? How you speak to your parents. I know most of you don't, maybe you don't even live with your parents, but how do you speak to your adult parents, elderly parents? Your attitude to your siblings, to that grumpy coworker you hate, the language you use, you know, on social media, what you do with social media. Like, are those things you would be happy for someone to model themselves after? Right? Because it's that detailed, isn't it? But it's for our joy. It's for our blessing. Right? It's for our good. Anyway, that's enough for me. Let's get the band up. We're going to sing. Um, our final song is actually going to be Hosanna. Um, and I don't know if you... We haven't sung it for a while, but um, this, the bit, I think the bridge where it says, break my heart for what breaks yours, everything I am for your kingdom's cause. Um, those bits, like, let's not just sing it, let's sing it as a prayer. I really ask God to do that in our lives so that we're not just singing praise to God, but we're actually singing and praying surrender to God. Will you do that? that we'll do that as a response. We've run out of time to do other response. So let's do that. Let me, um, let me pray and then, um, and then we'll sing this song as a prayer as well to, to close up. Father God, You are the wonderful Father who, even as you want to micromanage our lives, is not oppressive, it's, it's beautiful. Because as you seep into every area of our life, you're going to bring order and beauty. You're going to bring blessing. And I really pray that we would embrace that. That you would just right now wipe, wipe away the resistance, melt away the resistance of those areas of our lives we just don't want you to touch. Whether it's social, whether it's economic, whether it's theological. Father, I pray that you would... Um, complete the work that your Holy Spirit is doing in our life, not just so that we be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers by your power. And so help us to sing now as a prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, let's sing.